From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The world of horror and the fantastic knows few boundaries. It can be grounded at the Bates Motel, in a mother-loving maniac with a twisted sexual palate and a butcher knife in the shower. Or it can be set on a commercial spaceship with a crew battling an alien xenomorph. Fantasy, science fiction, and horror have always overlapped and made for friendly bedfellows. Horror can take place down the street as zombies infest the mall, or in a created weave world where entire foundations are built, societies of different creatures and creations in confounding combinations. We can find our fears everywhere. On one end of the spectrum, Stephen King usually tells stories set in a very real world, one we recognize and live in, and then takes a turn into the supernatural. At the other end, Neil Gaiman will create new worlds, new races, new planets, and weave them so realistically that we believe they could exist, do exist. Gaiman's stories are dense, wildly imaginative, and deeply human, and they cross over into many media, from short stories and novels to comic books to television to film. He is the quintessential storyteller whose work crosses genres. Drama, science fiction, fantasy, horror, humor, historical legends all meet in his very singular mind. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror were long partners in a ghetto, snubbed by the elite literati and film snobs, but now is our time. Tales of mystery and imagination are having their day in the sun and getting their revenge. Neil Gaiman has a new series coming to Amazon soon called Good Omens, and we'll talk with Neil about this and a long history of fantasy and a head in the clouds after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. 
Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. I'm really happy to announce that coming to theaters and on demand on June 21st, Nightmare Cinema brings together five masters of horror, and I say this humbly since I'm one of the filmmakers, to tell bone-chilling stories to keep your summer scary. The film critics are calling it a surreal slip down a rabbit hole to hell and gruesome fun. From the teams at Cranked Up Films and Shudder, don't miss Nightmare Cinema on June 21st. Visit crankedupfilms.com Nightmare Cinema for more information. Additionally, Cranked Up and Shudder are presenting an evening of nightmares with Alejandro Bruges, Joe Dante, and myself on June 14th at the Dynasty Typewriter in the Hayworth Theater on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. So Alejandro and Joe and I are three of the five filmmakers, along with Ryuhei Kitamura and David Slade, but we will be showing our earlier films, Alejandro's Juan of the Dead, Joe Dante's Piranha, and my very own Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. Come join us on a trip down memory lane in celebration of our upcoming film Nightmare Cinema, and I hope to see you there. And while we're on the subject, before it opens on June 21st, Nightmare Cinema will be screening at America's premier genre film festival, the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans, which runs from May 30th to June 2nd. I will be there to present the film, and we will be recording a new episode of Postmortem there with a live audience. So please join us at an amazing event, the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans, May 30th through June 2nd, and I will see you there. For over 15 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice for all of the demented discs you have been craving. Well, I'm really interested in your background. You have, to me, what is a very unique upraising in that your parents were Scientologists, as well as being Jewish. So you were brought up a Scientologist Jew. <laughs> and, and, and it gets even weirder than that, because I was a scholarship kid hmm. at a high church, Church of England school. Well, you've got three religions going so, for you now. You know, there's this sort of weird thing where you sort of wind up. And I think science fiction kind of had a lot to do with it for me. Science fiction was my... Um, kind of having, your bridge? Yeah, but knowing, reading um, Harlan Ellison, reading Samuel R. Delaney, reading Roger Zelazny, reading people like that as 
you know, age nine, ten, or whatever, um, at the point where you know you're you're a ten or eleven year old and you've read Michael Moorcock's Behold the Man, mm-hmm. you're not really sure how much of it you've got, but it's given you this sort of outsidery point of view. So the world um, of the fantastic not only was in fiction and television and films, but it was also in the legends or the truths of the religions under which you were Oh my gosh, up. absolutely. I remember um, the Reverend Maya Lev was assigned to um, get me through my bar mitzvah. And from the age of sort of 11 and a half or whatever, I would go up to my relatives in North London and stay there through school holidays, um, getting taught Hebrew, getting taught my portion. Um, And as far as Rev Lev was concerned, what he was trying to teach me was how to become a good Jewish boy. And as far as I was concerned the man was a fount of glorious stories. Mm -hmm. And what I cared about and would just, you know, pump him for him, pump him for him, know that anywhere that I went, we could, I could get him onto a story. And if I just said, well, why is that? Or what what do we know about that or whatever? I would get these amazing Midrash stories. Midrash is like the fan fiction Mm -hmm. of the Bible. Um, All of these rabbis going well why you know it says here that so and so did this but why would you do that well maybe and then they they construct these beautiful sort of pieces of essentially fanfic there it's not in the bible but it's i believe this or and suddenly you know i remember putting into sandman um a, a bit that i had assumed as a teenager that everybody knew because I'd been told. And it was only in conversation with people I realized that, you know, when you start talking about Adam as having been married three times, the idea that Eve was Adam's third wife, it seemed to come as rather a surprise to people. Yes, but you knew. I knew. I'd been, I'd been told. And I loved that. I loved the fact that, um, you know, the idea of, well, a lot of people know about Lilith, the idea that you have wife number one, mm. um, who was sent away primarily for insisting on being on top during having sex. <laughs> and uh, then she went off and consorted with demons and had lots of sex and gave birth to the Lilim, all of these, um, these, these demon creatures. And then... God went, okay, well, I'll just create one from scratch and apparently started with the skeleton and put on a nervous system, flesh, musculature, finished with the skin and the hair. And Adam was so traumatized by having seen this that he wouldn't go near her, wouldn't touch her. Um, Which is why then... God says, okay, and sends Adam to sleep. 
I want to study the Bible with you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear Neil Gaiman tell the stories of the Bible. I, I do love And you do it. I love the Midrash. Um, but I do. I, I mean, I've been doing it really in, in a weird way ever since. And I've been doing it with so much love and affection um, for all of these, these religions. I, I'm in the weird position. And so I've spent the last four years really not being an author at all. I've been, I, I wrote a uh, Good Omens, and then I made Good Omens. Into a TV series for in, Amazon. In this giant six-part TV series. And that basically took up four years of my life. Mm. Um, and while it was not badly paid... When you take that pay and you spread it over four years, mm -hmm. it's really not very much money at all. Right. However, um, I was saved from having to take a horrendous lifestyle cut or whatever, um, you know, fire my assistant and things, by the fact that I'd wrote an accidental bestseller. Hmm. And... The best kind. <laughs> uh, completely the best kind. And... You know, it's a book called Norse Mythology. Hmm. It became huge, absolute international bestseller when it came out in hardback. Did it again in paperback. It's sold in the millions. And, and I love that because it was just a little hobby project that I've been doing for a while for an academic publisher. Wow. Uh, and I've been writing a story here and there between, you know, I'd finish a, a Good Omen script and I'd right. write a Norse, do a Norse story or whatever. Um, and for me, the joy of that was just the idea that I was going to get to tell the Norse stories that I was familiar with from the Edda, from the prose Edda, from the poetic Edda, and build a little shape around them and just tell them with my voice, but really, if I could, infuse them with the delight of stories and the telling thereof. The idea that these stories were all, at one point or another, told round a campfire mm. by people during either the endless winter nights or the endless winter days when the night doesn't come and you're sitting up and it's still light and you slept for a while and now it's still light and how do you entertain yourself and the idea of those people around their campfires just telling stories of thor and loki mm. um i wanted i wanted to get in on that i wanted to build that and i wanted to do something that was absolutely faithful academically faithful usable fantastic um and my absolute delighted bafflement when it went up to the top of the bestseller list you know my wife was I, you know, i'm like this has happened she was like well didn't you expect that to happen well yeah <laughs> and I, well, I said well no i said i signed the contract for this book in 2009 if i if i thought this was going to happen i would have written it in 2009 <laughs> yeah um and quite a respite from the world building of your own you absolutely know, you are known as a fantasist, someone who creates these wildly imaginative worlds where you make all the rules. But here you're going to something from history and making it your own or 
or digging into it, uh, becoming uh, transplanted into these stories that that already had been embraced. Well, that I think for me was the joy of it um, was the idea that well, these are stories that a lot of people kind of know, mm-hmm. and it's a giant arc that lots of people kind of know, and and I set myself a certain number of little parameters on the book and basically the story whatever I was doing really had to come from um, the editors I couldn't go and take it from later places or or whatever Um, and that I wasn't really allowed to make things up to fill things in I was allowed to do that sort of storytelling thing where you you do corroborative detail right or I was even allowed to do things like um For example, I was allowed to do things that there was kind of textural evidence for, which again, I suppose, takes me back to the midrash that I was talking about. Right. There's a moment where Thor's goat stumbles and falls while he's fleeing. It's pulling um, his car- his carriage, and he has two goats, Grinder and Snarler, and uh, and Grinder. Um, falls and he curses Loki because of this um, and what's interesting is in the story that we have in which you discover what had happened to that goat's leg uh, essentially the, the short story version is that Thor would kill the goat cook it they could eat it but you couldn't break or lose any of the bones mm. You had to put them on the goat skin because then Thor would magic the goat whole again. But um, one this this kid called Thialfi um, broke open a bone to scoop out the bone marrow, and of course now the the goat had a broken leg, hmm. uh, which never really healed properly. And in the story, um, there's there's you know Loki's with them, but he doesn't do anything. But I thought, well, we have that bit where Thor curses Loki because this apparently was Loki's fault. So I felt very justified in just going into that legend and having Loki said to Thialfi, you know, the best bit is the marrow. That's why, <laughs> that's why he said don't, you know, because that's the really good bit. Well, the big charm of an author, the, the greatest thing an author can offer is a voice. Yeah. And the Neil Gaiman voice in telling stories that have been told before makes it something altogether different. And new and fresh. You, I learned that, or at least that was first articulated to me by one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Carroll. Uh. And I remember sending a postcard, because this was long, in the days long, long before email, to Jonathan, um, just saying that I just read his book, the Bones of the Moon, and having read it, I was now dumping um, this entire storyline that I was going to be doing in Sandman, which uh. I, was the one that came to be called A Game of You. Mm-hmm. And he just wrote back to me and he said, no, you, the purpose, tell your story. Don't go, Jonathan got there first. Right. Tell it's your a Neil story. Gaiman story. It's not a Neil Gaiman story. story. 
the purpose of an author is to tell it new. Right. And that's what I do now when, you know, young writers come up to me and they say, oh, I, I had this fantastic idea for a story and then I realized that you'd done it. And I'm like, well, no, go do yours. It's okay. <laughs> it, they it won't, won't be, be the, the same. same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, where did it all start for you? When did you realize you wanted to write? I was one of those kids who looked forward to the writing bits of yeah. school, looked forward to the fiction bits of school, looked forward to any opportunity to, be, to create. So maybe 11 or 12? Younger. Younger, um, yeah. Probably. I, I first remember um, writing in, and I would have been seven or eight. Oh, wow. Um, writing and enjoying writing stories. Um, and then I remember changing schools and having all of these characters that I'd really enjoyed writing about and I um, which and then stealing from whatever I was reading because you know I'm pretty sure at that point they were my characters were off you know meeting Conan the Barbarian and <laughs> Elric of Malnibane and stuff yeah, yeah. so the Howard books and everything I, else yeah. yeah they were all in there um, but but I remember just carrying some characters over from one school to another mm. and being told, getting a really, having got these fantastic, you know, O'Neill, you're so clever kind of comments, <laughs> just a sort of a, this is kind of stupid from, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, this is because you're coming in in the middle, but I, obviously I can't do that. So, right. And that right. would have been eight going on nine. Mm. Um, but, I didn't dream of being a writer. I dreamed of being the things that were in my environment, which is to say an English teacher or a librarian. Something very grounded and in front of you. Yeah, because I, I saw librarians and I thought mm. that would be an amazing job. You're surrounded by books. What, can it be better? An English teacher, that seems a really great job. You get to read things. You get to talk about fiction. You get to read English things, you know, novels and short stories, and this is amazing. When did it strike you that you could actually do that um, for a job? <laughs> I was very, very early 20s, I think. Really? That long? Um, and well, I'd been writing, mm -hmm. but I hadn't really shown anything to anybody, and I also... I hadn't finished anything. You know, I had the beginnings of a thousand short stories. Maybe. And you're a writer when you finish writing something. You are. Yes. And I just had beginnings. Hmm. And I would have been, I don't know, 20, I guess. Hmm. And I had a bad night. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced actual insomnia. I'd experienced not being able to go to sleep before, but eventually you go to sleep. But right. Here I am, and I'm just lying awake, and it's not happening. And now it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's not happening. And it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and it's not happening. And I can't really turn on my light and read. And I'm listening to the radio. Seemed, there wasn't really anything on it. It all finished, because that was in pre-internet days where you were limited by what was actually around. And I'm lying in bed thinking. And I thought, you know, I think. I'm a writer. 
And I'm not really doing anything about it. <laughs> and if I don't do anything about it, then one day I'll be 70, 80. I'll be on my deathbed. I'll be in a hospital knowing that I'm around the end of my life. And I will be thinking, I could have been a writer. I could have done that. <laughs> regrets. But not even regrets. It, was, it would be the thing that would, and I realized the thing that would drive me nuts would be being that person and not knowing if I was lying to myself. Mm. Thinking, as I've always thought, I think I'm good enough. I think I have what it takes. I think I'm a writer. But the idea of getting to the end of my life and just going, I, I was a writer, I just didn't write anything, mm -hmm. would have been awful. And I went, okay, well, let me, let, let me spend a few years trying this thing. If I fail, great. At least at that point, I will be able to go into the world going, well, obviously, I was not a writer. I thought I was a writer, <laughs> but I wasn't a writer. It turns out I was a hotel administrator. <laughs> Who knew? Um, <laughs> and lo and behold. But I was a writer. The grand experiment paid off. It really did. Um, and I was lucky. Because, and I, the thing that I, I think I was luckiest in is that there was enough chutzpah at the point where I didn't know how good I wasn't. <laughs> Which is to say, I thought I was brilliant, and I wasn't. I was just, but I was good enough to be sparky and to sell journalism. Right. And I was lucky enough, and luck, honestly, is, is looking back on it, was the hugest part of the whole thing. Um, I was lucky enough to, when I was trying to be a journalist right in the beginning, um, I'd written some short fiction. It hadn't sold. I had gone... I do not choose to believe it's because it's not good enough, although actually it was because it wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, I think it's because I don't know how this whole thing works. I'm going to find out how the thing works. I'm going to be a freelance journalist specializing in publishing science fiction and fantasy, and I'm going to understand it all. Um, and so that morning I got on the phone to editors, and it was like, hi, I'm a journalist. I specialize in... Wow. And which in those pre-Google days you could do. Yes. Um, and the, the, the great thing um, that was purely luck was one of the journalists, I, I, I said, I've got an interview with Robert Silverberg. Hmm. And I didn't, but I knew that he was coming to London and I knew that I could probably get one. Right. And the journalist said, well, I think I was talking to one of the major newspapers, the Times or, or the Guardian, and they were like, well, what would the angle be with Silverberg? And I said, well, he's, you know, apart from anything else, the man who put sex in the science fiction. <laughs> and they said, well, why don't you try Penthouse? They'll, they'll do things arty with a sex angle. So I phoned the editor of Penthouse. Light bulb, bing. And he said, sure. <laughs> and I interviewed Silver, the Silverberg interview. The guy bought it for... Three, four hundred pounds. 
I'd also, at the same time, done another interview with an author named Joy Chant, uh, published by a very respectable women's magazine. Mm -hmm. The very respectable women's magazine paid me 80 pounds, took all rights, and as far as I remember, never published it. <laughs> and suddenly I had 400 pounds for the, for the Silverberg. And it's like, oh, this is a really good thing. Yeah, this nice is, racket. <laughs> and that really subsidized my next couple of years. While I was learning to write, yeah. I was being subsidized by Penthouse. I was being subsidized by Knave. I was being subsidized by these magazines, which I didn't actually have to write sex for. Um, <laughs> I was doing interviews with people, you know, with Douglas Adams, with... Um, James Herbert, science fiction writer Harry Harrison. Yeah, you I've, learn something from all of these. I mean, that's why I'm still doing this, despite having been a filmmaker and author and all that stuff. Every conversation like this I have is fascinating and educational and evolutionary to me. My first interview when I was in high school was with Ray Bradbury. Oh. My second was with Rod Serling. And, you know, it's always been a fascination for me. And you and I also share in our youth's music journalism. Mm -hmm. um, your first book was a biography of Duran Duran. It was. And I had interviewed Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin when I was, again, in high school and that sort of thing. So tell me about that part of your life, the journalism part of your life, and how that allowed you the comfort zone to be able to write fiction. You know, the thing that was so great for me about being a journalist in retrospect was the skills that I learned were not skills that I knew that I was learning. Hmm. Um, but they were the key skills that actually made me an author of fiction. For example? Um, deadline. Ah. Uh, you know, I need it on my desk tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Then you get it on, you finish it, and it's on the desk tomorrow. You're not waiting for the muse. You're not waiting for inspiration. Uh, you need it at three o'clock and it's midday. Okay, well, I'll be typing in this corner then. And that uh, working when other stuff is going on and you just get down there and you, and you write. That was huge. Um, transcribing interviews. I would interview people and by the end of, you know, you talk to somebody for a couple of hours, you transcribe it, you have six, seven, eight thousand words of transcription. You have a three thousand word interview to do, and you're going to need 400 words of that as a sort of introduction at the beginning and an out at the end and little stuff in the middle. And you wind up finding the best anecdotes and bits and putting them at the beginning, taking the second best stuff at the end, burying the rest of it in the middle. <laughs> but what you also wind up doing is learning an economy of language while trying to reproduce speech patterns. I used to love it when people would say to me, I have never been so accurately quoted ah. as in your interviews, because yeah. I would go, there is not a single sentence in that interview that is the words that you actually said. <laughs> Everything has been trimmed and compressed. But then when I came to write comics and later coming to write scripts, um, you know, in comics where you can basically put 30 words into a word balloon, 
you have your 30 words, you have your six panels on a page, and you have you can put 30 words in each panel, and that's 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 what you've got. Um, it was it was fabulous because it was such an it, it taught me economy of dialogue, but it taught me the fact that you can make people sound like themselves with very very few words. Mm-hmm. Um, so that stuff I think was absolutely invaluable. But there were also weird lessons that I learned from people that I didn't know that I was learning. Mm. And they, I think, in some ways, have become much more important to me over the years. Such as? Without naming names, one of the lovely things about interviewing best-selling writers and big and important writers, um, there were two things, both of which I, I think have had a huge impact on the way that I've shaped whatever career I've had. Um, one of which was the frustration. This wouldn't be during the interview. This would be afterwards when you're having a meal or you're in the pub and you're still talking. But all of the recording devices are off. And somewhere in that, best-selling science fiction author tells you about their historical novel Mm. that nobody will buy. Mm. or you know you you suddenly realize that from where i was on the ground as a 25 year old journalist all of these people the world was their oyster they could do anything they had everything they had everything and they could do anything and then you talk to them and they'd be saying well and i wrote this amazing novel set in the french revolution and it's nobody will publish it because what i do with these techno thrillers mm-hmm and you're going, but you're, you're, you're this famous, successful techno-thriller author. And it's like, and you realize, ah, that only works up to a point. Publishers, publishing authors like them to stay in boxes. And so my entire career was going, I am not getting in your fucking box. <laughs> I am not doing that. And I'm, I remember when, when American Gods was published... My agent, my literary agent, got a letter from a publisher saying we would like Neil to come and be published by our publishing house instead of the one that he is currently with. We will give him money in wheelbarrows. We will give him (laughs) all of this wonderful money that he could possibly imagine. And all he has to do is not faff around and do different weird things. He actually has to stick to it properly. And now he's written American Gods. You know, he needs to do the next, all of the novels with us. Need to be kind of like American Gods, probably a little bit with the fat trimmed, a little bit more effective and that kind of thing. The Neil Gaiman book. It would would have been the Neil Gaiman book. And, And my agent was very sweet she said, I'm not even, she read me a couple of paragraphs from it. She said, I'm not even going to send this to you. I, I know what you're going to say. And I said, <laughs> well, the next thing we're publishing is Coraline. And right. that was the next thing we were publishing. because 180 degree different direction. Absolutely. And the thing before it was Stardust. Right. And as far as I'm concerned, that was something that I had learned from 
those guys, which is I'd realized it was a beautiful, gold-plated, diamond-encrusted, velvet trap mm-hmm. only being allowed to do one kind of thing. Um, well, and you're a magician, and you're a storyteller, and you're a world creator. And those things, I can't imagine you being put in that straitjacket. And I, I, would have, I would go mad. It would mm-hmm. be really frustrating if I were told... It would, it would be like having a wonderful meal and then being told, okay, this is what you will be eating for the rest of your life. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the joy of creating yeah. is I want to be able to go off and do the next thing, do the other thing, whatever the other thing is. And, you know, if I decide to do a, a book of recipes, I want to do a book of recipes <laughs> and have a publisher get behind it. Going, well, it's Neil. He's making a writing a pornographic cookbook for some reason, but <laughs> we're going to let him do it. Well, let's go back. Because of the different media that you have been involved in, the first kind of real switch was two comic books. And Sandman was your first real international renown, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, quite... Uh, career-changing moment for you. Uh, and you found yourself in the world of comic books, which has never been thought of as anybody's idea of becoming a millionaire writing comic books. But this was something that really made a difference in the world of comics publishing and yourself personally as an artist. It's true. I was really lucky. I, you know, that there's that wonderful thing of... Um, when you look back... And you realize that it was, you really were in the right place at the right time. And this was really kind of the only time that this thing could have happened the way that it happened. And now there are books on it and books talking about what happened in comics in the late 80s. And I'm part of that thing. And Were and you the, a, a big comics fan at that time? I was. I was. In fact, originally I was one of the journalists I remember in 1986, um, Alan Moore had shown me Watchmen in 85 in black and white photocopies. I'd read the first three or four, and I'd gone, this is, a, this is a game changer. This is a complete game changer. And I was got the first Dark Knight Returns. Hmm. And it was like, okay. And Mouse was happening in Raw. Um, I don't know that Mouse had been collected at that point, but Mouse was in Raw. I think maybe the first Mouse had just come out. Um, and Love and Rockets, the Hernandez brothers were doing Love mm-hmm. and Rockets. And it was just like, there is a thing happening here. And Com- it is huge. And comics is, not being for kids anymore. Comic, yeah, but comics n- not being for kids anymore in a different way to comics had not been for kids anymore. There's There's always been that, there was a headline, a newspaper headline, which went, wham, smash, pow, comics aren't just for kids anymore. <laughs> and yeah. it was, but there was something that transcended that wham, smash, powery. Right. And I, but I remember phoning all the editors that I knew in the UK. And, you know, right at that point, I was a newspaper journalist and going to my editor and saying, there is this thing happening. It is big. It is important. Let me do an article on it. And being told, no, we have written an article about comics already this year. <laughs> it was Desperate Dan's 50th anniversary, and we we couldn't write another one. 
getting the Sunday Times magazine to commission an article from me on comics. Go out. I went out. I did the interviews. I got the artwork. I did the whole thing. And um, then and sent in the article. I was so proud of it. Mm. And didn't hear anything, which is really odd. Because back in those days, you know, your phone would ring. Right. And I'd sent in with art. And I'd got all this amazing stuff. And this would have been the first great article on comics. And so I phoned the editor and I said, hello, Neil, I did the article for you on comics. He said, ah, yes. He said, I'm afraid I, I have a bit of a problem with it. He said, I've read the article and, um, well, the, these comics... You seem to think they're a good thing, <laughs> and I'm like, well, actually, he said, I'm, I'm looking for more balance in the piece. I said, well, how do you mean balance? He said, well, you, you seem to think they're a good thing, and I realized the kind of balance that he meant was I needed to go out and interview people who would go, this is rubbish. And I'm like, well, that's no, I'm, I'm like, that will be the equivalent of looking around and having the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. And you've just done the first interviews with them saying something amazing is happening in English rock. And they say, well, for balance, could you go and find people who will say these long-haired louts right. are ruining everything? <laughs> and uh, and why don't they have proper lyrics? <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, so they paid me. He, he gave me a kill fee. Mm. And the kill fee was higher than any amount I'd ever been paid for writing an article to that date. And oh frankly, God. if I could have published the article for free and forgone the kill fee, I would have done because I was an evangelist. And I finally got the, uh, not that article, but I got an article, which is a big article in um, Time Out magazine mm. in London back right. when that still had clout and importance. And, and the uh, they were going backwards and forwards. The editor was going backwards and forwards between a the dance troupe on the cover or the Watchmen cover. And he wow. went for the dance troupe. <clears throat> and every now and again, the editor in question, who I run into from time to time, very, very sweet, smart man named Dominic Wells, who loves comics, hmm. um, has said, you know, I really screwed up. That would, <laughs> that would have been the first magazine with a comics cover. And we never did it. And, uh, you, you know, we were there at the start and we put the dance troupe on the cover. Yeah, you were there as the world was starting to turn and they were trying to hold it back. They really were. It's, it's a and shame. It, it felt a lot. You know, at the time, it felt like something exciting was happening. And it was. It really was. Um, and it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, I, I try and figure out now what the equivalent must have been like. And it probably the equivalent would have been, you know, maybe Silicon Valley at the turn of hmm. the century or whatever. The, 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 and right now, in some weird ways, it feels like it might be television. Yeah, well, um, and, and that's something I want to get to as well once these sirens pass, which <laughs> we're not radio, so we don't care. Um, but another medium for you was uh, started with Neverwhere, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, film and television 
are two separate animals. They used to be much further apart than they are now. But um, you were there with Neverwhere. You wrote the screenplay of your own Coraline. Um, and for Beowulf, you're starting to write screenplays, teleplays, and the like. Tell me about that transition, because here's another left turn for Neil Gaiman. Well, um, Neverwhere, for me, was incredibly educational. You know, one thing about my career and my life and actually my, my entire skill set is normally I do things wrong a few times before I get them right, um, which is good. You know, mm -hmm. I wrote some comics that were not great before Sandman. Even the beginning of Sandman isn't, you know, it's figuring things out. And then I've made my mistakes and now you watch it start to fly. Um Neverwhere, I think I wrote a pretty decent script. Still very proud of the scripts that I wrote for Neverwhere. The biggest problem with it was that the BBC didn't quite get it. And having, you know, written something that was meant to have been 42 minutes long and shot on film, I suddenly found myself, it, it was now suddenly 28 minutes long and on video. Mm. Um and a lot of drama on British uh, television was shot on video, and it does change the perception of it in well, a big way. In the case of Neverwhere, we had years in America of people thinking it was better than it was because they were watching it on pirated copies that had been sort of amateur transferred right. from NTS, PAL to NTSC, um, which actually made it look rather better because it was smudgy. When you <laughs> see it clear, uh, the biggest problem with it was that it was shot on Digibeta. Oh, but because wow. it was going to have been, um, it was meant to have been run through a film filter, mm -hmm. but they didn't actually have a working one by the time that it was finished. Oh, no. um, but also the cameraman had not actually understood, or the lighting cameraman, or possibly the lighting guy or some somebody back then had not actually understood when they were told that it was going to be run through a film filter. Hmm. So it was shot on video and lit for film, hmm. uh, which then... made everything look, um, well, even, even the locations look like cheap sets. Hmm. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. It's that soap opera effect. Yes. It, it really was. And people were very baffled by what they were seeing. And I was sad because I'd had this sort of vision of this thing and it wasn't this thing. Um, well, but it was but actually the transition, useful. It, the transition into this media for you, how, did it feel transitional or did it just feel evolutionary? I was evolutionary? so glad. It just felt like another arrow in the storytelling quiver, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I guess some of that is because of the people that I admired. Or footnote some of the people that I admired <laughs> mm -hmm. um, were people who kind of did it all. Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury wrote novels. Ray Bradbury wrote short stories. Ray Bradbury wrote for children. He wrote for adults. He wrote horror. He wrote fantasy. He wrote science fiction. He wrote mainstream fiction. He wrote the script to John Huston's Moby Dick. Yes, he did. He wrote, you know, he wrote TV adaptations. He wrote poetry. The Nobody, Jar. Exactly. The Jar is one of my favorite scripts he ever wrote. 
nobody told Ray what to do. And they, the idea is here is somebody who is a magical writer and he's going to do something fantastic. Mm. Harlan Allison. Harlan, did you ever get to work with Harlan? Didn't work with him, but I knew him very well, yeah. I mean, Harlan was on the one hand a genius and on the other hand his own worst enemy. Um, True both. You know, <laughs> the, the, at one point there was an organization of people he had pissed off who called themselves the enemies of Ellison. And I was like, <laughs> none of you will ever do any to Harlan any of the damage that Harlan can do with a phone call to <laughs> yes. Harlan. Repeatedly. Um, you yeah. know, and, yeah. But Harlan, reading his work in the 60s and the 70s, reading his nonfiction and watching him, whatever he, you know, if he wrote humor, it was funny. Mm-hmm. If he wrote horror, it was terrifying. If he wrote science fiction, it opened your mind to the world. If he wrote fantasy, it mattered. And here he is writing an amazing episode of, of Star Trek. Yeah. City on the Edge of Forever, one of the great ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, writing, um, ghost writing and writing films, mostly bad films because he pissed people off. <laughs> um, and never got the job to do the, you know, didn't get to stick around on the big things. Yes, the Oscar. <laughs> I was going to say this, yes. the Oscar. Yes, um, But, you know, the fact is, he was brilliant yeah. and could do all of those things. And for me, um, you know, Ray and Harlan together were just like absolutely my... They were my heroes, both of whom incidentally wrote comics. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, picking up a creepy and there's there's Harlan writing Rock God. Um, I remember picking up the the giant EC collectibles and there's Ray Bradbury writing stories for EC comics and, right. and adapting his own, uh, you know, and having... They, they the small stuff. assassin. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's something so powerful about that. And for me... So there was never the idea that I wouldn't be able to write movies or TV or whatever if I wanted to. The problem that Neverwhere had, and it's not one that I blame the BBC for in any way, is that it was in the wrong time. Mm -hmm. I was trying to make now television in 1996. Right. The technology wasn't there. The budgets weren't there. The ability wasn't there. The actors weren't there. Honestly, the directors weren't there. Yeah. A conversation that I had with interviewing directors in 1996, and a bunch of directors came in, and I remember one of them saying, look, I've read the scripts. They are all over the place. You've got humor horror, adventure, romance, uh, social commentary. Um, How awful. <laughs> you, know, you, you need to pick a thing and stick to it. It can only be one thing. Mm. And Visionaries, I, all of them. What I've yeah. loved about Good Omens is um, the director, Douglas McKinnon, who did all six episodes. It's, it's basically six hours... A, a, you know, basically, we we kind of made a six-hour-long movie, mm-hmm. but in the making of it, uh, when Douglas was asked what the tone of Good Omens would be by Amazon in his first interview, he said it doesn't have one. 
<laughs> I can make each scene. I can give each scene a tone. Mm. But it's actually just all about the integrity of the fact that when it's scary, it's scary. When it's funny, it's funny. When it's exciting, it's exciting. When there's social commentary, it's social commentary. When it's goofy, it's goofy. When it's mind-expanding, it's mind-expanding. You have to go with the tone in front of you and just commit to it. And that's what I want to make. And that's what he did. And it's amazing. So uh, one of the big changes here for, well, your last series, American Gods, was something you were involved in, but at the other end of a telephone for the most part. Yeah. Uh, but uh, David Slade, who did the first three episodes, he and I just finished doing a movie that's coming out next month uh, called Nightmare Cinema. And, oh, brilliant. And it was just such... The American Gods pilot and the the series itself is massive and just so expansive. But your involvement was really more as... I, an advisor. I, I, exactly. I, 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 and the thing about being an advisor is sometimes your advice is listened to and sometimes it's ignored. <laughs> right. And, you know, there were a few times. I remember in that first script, they sent me a draft that they were incredibly proud of in that first episode where Audrey gets down on her knees in the graveyard on Laura's grave and gives Shadow a blowjob. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And they're like, ah, but he's just come out of prison. He's raging male hormones. He's going to drive him to accept it. And I'm like, if you keep that scene in as written and don't have him decline the blowjob, I am going to step in front of a bus having written a note saying that it is all your fault. <laughs> and they were like, oh, my God. Okay, good. We'll lose that scene. But it was. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a level on which, you know. It, it's it's funny. I have a lot. I had a lot of influence on the first four episodes mm -hmm. of season one of American Gods. Less so on the next four episodes because of just the way that things get written. Um, and for season two, I was off making Good Omens in the UK, right. and that was the sort of thing where I'd read read scripts, give them notes, and then learn later that none of the notes have been acted on. It's like, well, okay. You know, you don't actually have to act on any of my notes, but this thing, that you, this trouble you're now in with plot-wise, you wouldn't have been in if you'd listened to the notes. Right. So, but it was a thing of there is only so much you can do and, and by location or even tri-location is not yet a thing. So I was <laughs> in London doing six and seven day weeks and, and, 14, 15 hour days at that point, getting good omens yeah. through post-production. Well, I know we have to wrap it up now. Time is precious for you. Uh, but just one last question. What you just set up is the difference between that and good omens. Good omens, you are the showrunner. Yeah. This is your baby. This I wrote it and then I... When I wrote... I wrote a couple of episodes of Doctor Who. Um, and... One of them won piles of awards, you know, a shelf full of awards. And one of them is widely considered to be a bit of a dog, maybe with some good bits. And I am familiar with both of the scripts, and I'm of the opinion that actually the original scripts were both of them about of equal standard. 
And the problem that the episode that is considered to be a dog had mostly is that things that were in the script didn't get shot or they got mm. changed on the fly by people or the art department went, he's asked for this, but what actually we can do is this and we've changed this. And I'm sort of going, I didn't know the art department could rewrite things. Mm. Okay. And um, with Good Omens being showrunner, any time anybody on the production end would come to me and say, we are cutting this scene. I would say, if you cut that scene, then it doesn't make any fucking sense. That scene is going to stay. If we need to save some money, you can cut this scene over here. And they go, but that's a, that's a really good scene and we like that. And it's, and it's like, yeah, but, but I can pull it out. And it you get to be the, the final story. word. I get to be the person who decides. I yeah. get to. I got to cast it, um, which was a feeling of glorious power in itself. And I got to set the tone and be there. Tell me the tone of the series and just give us a one-liner. Uh, Good Omens, I think, is the funniest and most exciting television series ever made about the end of the world and how we're all probably going to die um it's about an angel and a demon who've been on earth since the garden of eden actually have a lot more in common with each other than they do with either of their respective head offices and like it on earth and when they discover that armageddon is meant to be happening um they because neither heaven nor hell have little sushi restaurants or anywhere nice that you can get a drink decide to try and keep the earth going and the only problem is uh they've mislaid the antichrist who has been grown up as a nice kid in a little english village and uh is absolutely about to start saving absolutely about to start ending the world well, I can't think of a better ending for our conversation than that. Neil Gaiman, thank you so much for your time and your art. Thank you so much. And it's such a delight after all of these years of hearing about you, finally to meet you. Finally to meet you as well. It's a total and delightful pleasure. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.